Good day this morning and joining us. I am, uh, my name is Tanner Dever. I'm your pastor here. Uh, we are, I think, what, Anthony, three or four weeks into this, uh, into our official launch, four weeks, uh, three, three weeks or so into this thing. And so we're, we're still getting some kinks worked out and we're still, we're still doing the dang thing. But it's amazing to see what God has done and how he's continued to grow us from a little tiny church that met in a living room um, to now we have a building and we're here with quite a few people this morning. And so that's always amazing to see God working. And so I, I covet your prayers this morning. Uh, I hate to ever tell on myself or anything, but I'm a bit unprepared. And so just bear with me if some things seem choppy. So I'm just, I, I ask that you would lift my arms as I present the word and, and help me uh, and just pray for me that, that I would handle the word right and accurately this morning. So let's pray. Uh, actually, before we pray, find your, your spot in Colossians in chapter 1, and as you're turning there, we'll pray. So, Father, we love you. We're so grateful for your grace, and we're thankful for your mercy. And, God, we think this morning of the partners that we have here in this city um, that are all having um, church services now at this time. And, God, I pray that you would, uh, that, that the pastors in the area that we partner with would honor you this morning and honor your word, and that they would lift you high, and that they would exalt Jesus in their pulpits this morning. And we pray for a move of the Holy Spirit to convict people, to save people this morning even, and um, all across the city. And so, God, we ask for your favor. We ask, God, for your grace uh, this morning during this service. And I know that we have some family members um, uh, that have lost family members, and I know that their hearts are heavy this morning. And so, God, I pray that you would just touch their heart and comfort them, be there with them in their uh, time of sorrow. And, Father, we ask that you would dry their eyes and lift up their weary heads Help us this morning, God, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, to see who he is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the title of this message is The Supremacy of Christ. And so if you found your way to Colossians chapter 1, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You guys can be seated now. As you can tell, the, the chunk of this message that we're going to be dealing with, the, the, the topic the, is the person of Jesus Christ, and so it's going to be a little bit of a kind of a heavy work this morning. We're going to plow our way through this text and we're going to talk about some things. We're going to use some bigger words and I'm going to explain things as we go. But it's going to be a great, a great sermon. And if I don't hurry up and, and push on, we'll be here forever. So uh, just kind of way by starting into this, uh, in 1893, right after the Chicago fire, you guys know Chicago basically burnt down to the ground, right? Um, it rose like a phoenix after that. And in 1893, um, Chicago was holding what was known as the, World, the World's Columbian Exposition. And in this, uh, 21 million people visited the exhibits that was being held at this World Columbian Exposition. And among the features of that exhibit was this thing called 
the, uh, the, world of, uh, the world parliament of religions. And so basically all these different representatives from all these different religions all across the world met together in Chicago and they were possibly trying to come up with a new world religion. And D.L. Moody, a guy who was in um, Chicago at the time, a, a, a great expositor and a great evangelist, saw a chance for evangelism. And so what he did was he assigned evangelists. You know, there's 21 million people flooding Chicago. So he's like, it's a, it'd be like when we have the, the College World Series here, there's all these people flooding Omaha. It'd be a great place to start putting people in preaching posts and start to begin to lift Christ high for a purpose of evangelism. Well, D.L. Moody just places uh, preachers and evangelists on corners and he places them in rented theaters and he, he places them in churches that he's, that he's rented. He even rented a big old circus tent and basically had a revival more or less and he was preaching the word of God um, to the people. And so the people that were on D.L. Moody's um, team and on his board, these other evangelists, they wanted him to attack the world parliament of religions for um, their views on people uh, or on uh, Jesus not being the way, the truth, or life, or their views on holding to other gods and things like that. And D.L. Moody refused. And in fact, he said that, and I quote him, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. And then when I read that, I was like, come on, man, like, you're D.L. Moody. I really like you, and I don't like the way you said that. But he said, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to that. And he, and he, he caveated this by, by saying, in order to do that, he preached the preeminence or the fact that Jesus Christ surpass, or surpasses all others. He preached the fact that Jesus is supreme. He preached the fact that Jesus is all sufficient. And basically, he preached Colossians to them right here in this verse, in these verses that we're looking at today. And so in doing this, um, you know, D.L. Moody is elevating Christ to his rightful position, you know, in preaching the sovereign and supreme Christ and highlighting who Christ is and, and not holding anything back, but glorifying Jesus as the eternal creator, the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. By doing that, God gave D.L. Moody the increase there on the streets of Chicago that day. And it was what's known has gone down in history as the Chicago sh- uh, campaign. And thousands of people came to Christ that day. It was amazing. And he didn't do it by saying, hey, repeat this prayer after me and do this and do that. But instead, he just made Christ beautiful by lifting him to the position that he's already in and and, and highlighting who Christ is. And so let's remember the Colossian heresy that's going on in this book as we continue to progress. Um, that they believed that Jesus was really just a step on the ladder to the true God. They thought that if you was going to get tr- to the true God, Jesus was really just one of the rungs, like the bottom rung. And then after that, you had to have like a higher knowledge. You had to have worshiped the angels. You had to have this. You had to that, have that. It was, it was not the fact that Jesus is all. They didn't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody goes to the Father except through him. They didn't think that Jesus was sufficient. He was just merely the bottom rung of the ladder. And so the approach that Moody took in his Chicago campaign is nothing new. And, and in fact, it's the, uh, it's the same approach that Paul took. I mean, this is exactly who Christ is. All he did was just preach Jesus. It's the same approach that Apostle Paul took in confronting the false teachers and encouraging the church in Colossae. And so as we talked about the sermon is the supremacy of Christ, meaning that he is above all others, he's supreme, he's powerful, he's sovereign, he, is, uh, he outranks everybody else. The first point of supremacy that we're going to look at is that Christ is supreme in eternity. Look there at verse 15 with me, the very beginning part. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. 
And Jesus is the image of God is not to be understood as a mere replica of God. Jesus is the image of God is not to be understood as looking in a mirror and seeing it like that. Jesus as the image of God isn't supposed to be looked at like that he shares some similarities with the Father. It's not necessarily a portrait of of God. No, you see, Jesus is the precise, exact, entire, and exclusive manifestation of God. He is the exact nature of God in all fullness. And 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 basically, he, he makes what is invisible, because God is invisible, visible. You see, God... The Father is spirit. He doesn't have flesh and blood or hands and feet like we do. And Jesus is both God and man. And that's something that we're not going to dive into today uh, in a very deep context. Maybe we'll overlook it or look at it just kind of in an overviewing way. But Jesus is both God and man. See, Jesus is the revelation of of what and who God is. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, just very beautifully. He says, he is the radiance. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint. And what that means is that it's like the dye of a coin or like the seal on a wax. He's the exact imprint of the essence of God. For he is God. And Jesus asserted this in his earthly ministry. In John 8, verse 58, he says, before Abraham was what I am and what was he saying he, he, he wasn't just like grammatically incorrect or anything like that he was saying uh, and, and helping the Pharisees to see um, drawing their minds back to when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush right and he said hey God who do I tell them that you are more or less who do you want me to go tell these Israelites these things and, and I'm going to set you free and do all these other things who do you want me to tell you that you are? And he says, tell them I am who I am. And so by Jesus saying before Abraham was, I am, he is claiming that he is God. The word image here includes both Jesus as God, which is deity, as well as Jesus as God's personal representation, his humanity. Again, Jesus is both God and man. So why is that important? See, it's important because in exalting Christ as the image of the invisible God, Paul disarms the false teachers in just a half a sentence, in a half a verse here. He's the image of the invisible God. He takes the gun right out of their hands. They can't do anything. Christ is not a stepping stone to get to the true God. He's not a series of emanations to get to the true God. He's not a shadowy byproduct of God. He's the real deal, amen? He's the exact representation of God, for he is God. He is the supreme one. Now this had to this this section here uh, about being the image of the invisible God had to do with the relationship uh, Jesus's relationship to the Father. So let's look now at his relationship to creation. Look with me there at the second part of verse fifteen. Well, we'll just read all of fifteen. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the idea of being the firstborn in this instance has to do more with rank. It's not necessarily dealing with um, time, okay? It has to do with position. And so this is a point of stumbling for many people today. Uh, Just like you think about the Jehovah Witnesses, for instance, they believe that Jesus Christ was a created being. I think that Mormons even kind of lean into that as well, uh, that Jesus Christ is a created being. And it's a point of stumbling for people today, just as it was a point of stumbling for the false teachers back then who taught this stuff. Um, many people who, who claim to be Christians teach that Christ is a created being, and they deliberately misinterpret texts such as this one to validate their false teaching. 
And looking at the context of this passage, we know that this cannot be the case because Paul would be agreeing with those that he is combating. See, Jesus was not created. Amen? You guys know that? He is God. He is eternal. He's without beginning and without end. Revelation says that he is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And it says that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And John chapter 1, it says he, that in the beginning was the word, which is Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word, what, was God. He is eternal. He's without beginning. He's without end. So Paul, in saying that Christ is the firstborn of all creation, is speaking mainly to his rank in creation and not to time. The fact that he is superior. He's speaking to the fact that he is higher. He's speaking to the fact that Christ is better and over everything else in creation. And you might say, you need to prove that to me because firstborn to me sounds like firstborn, like uh, I have a son, uh, his name is Rev, and our other son who was just born, his name is Judson. Rev came first. You're thinking, well, that's your firstborn. The people in the first century would understand what Paul is trying to say. When speaking of the firstborn in the first century, the firstborn was the one who was the ranking son. It was the one who was given the father's inheritance. It was the one who was given the father's blessing. The firstborn oftentimes was not the son who was born first. It was the one whom the title was given to in order to display his superiority over the other sons. And you say, prove that to me again. Think about Abraham. How many sons did Abraham have? He had Ishmael and he had Isaac, right? Who received the blessing? Isaac did, correct? You think about Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first. Jacob was born second. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. You think about Israel. You know, God says that they are the firstborn among the nations. Before Israel was ever a nation, before it was ever a country, before it was ever a people, there was many people in Mesopotamia and Egypt and everything else and many nations and countries. So how could that be the case? Well, it's the fact that Israel is the heir of the promises of God. That Israel is preeminent over all nations because they have God's favor and blessing and inheritance. And so the meaning of this text, I hope I've proven it to you, is not referring to time but to rank. So what Paul is highlighting here is that Jesus is far more superior than all other people, all other places, and all other things. He was before creation and he is over creation, the firstborn of all creation the one in whom the birthright is given to, the one in whom the blessing is upon, the one and only one in whom is due the right to be inheritor of it all, the ranking son, the supreme one, Jesus Christ, the one who is worthy and whom highest honor belongs to. Look there at verse 16 now. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and for him, our second observation is he's the creator of all things and he is also the aim of creation. And so if we needed any more proof that Jesus is not a created being, it's right here in this passage of scripture in verse 16. You see, Jesus cannot be the creator of all things and at the same time be created. That doesn't make a bit of logical sense. A major focus of this verse is, is on the spiritual, spiritual realm. Uh, remember, the false teachers, they promoted the worship of angels, and some even attributed Jesus to being an angel. And, and Paul rejects this attack, and he makes it known that all angels, fallen or holy, are just created beings, right? They're just created beings made by God. And furthermore, that the one who created them is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent firstborn, the creator of all things, Jesus Christ. 
So Christ is the very origin, the creation, or the creator of creation. By him all things were created. In John chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's the source of it all, and he's above it all. I'm talking about from the highest throne, from the highest dominion, from the highest rule, from the highest authority in the heavenly places to the smallest of the over 800,000 cataloged insects. Christ created them all. It's Jesus Christ who has held the oceans in his hands. It's Jesus Christ who measured the heavens with his fingers. It's, it's Jesus Christ who weighed the mountains and set them into place. I mean, it's remarkable. Have you, has anybody ever been to the mountains before? Y'all just been around flat? You, you ever been anywhere, Jill? You just flatland, flatland Nebraska? I mean, if you've ever stood at the base of a mountain, before I moved to Missouri, I was born in Washington State, so I know mountains, man. And, I would, and when I took Naomi, my wife, there for the first time, she stood at the base of a mountain and said, wow, like, I understand what the Lord is saying in his word now. He weighed out the mountains and set them in place. What a big God that we have to be able to do something like that, to set the mountains in place. They're massive. You ever stood at the edge of a beach, right? At the edge of a seashore? And you just can't see anything but the world that just dips off. That's massive. And God told the waters to be here and don't pass this point. It's amazing. He set them all in place. It's remarkable. And furthermore, all things, it says here in this section of Scripture, all things were created for him. I like the way that one translation says it. It says that all things were created towards him. Towards him. Jesus is God. He, he needed nothing. You see, he was in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in, in eternity past. He didn't need us. He didn't need any of this. However, for his glory and for his pleasure, because he chose to, he created all things from the highest throne to the smallest insect. And all things exist for what reason, guys? To give him glory. I like the Westminster Catechism. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when you say, what's my purpose in life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Everything serves the will of Jesus or it contributes to his glory. The visible, invisible thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all created things by him will either gather around his throne and worship or be under him as his footstool. He is not only the creator of all things, but he's also the sustainer of all things. And I want you to just listen to the power of these words in verse 17. And he is before all things and check this out and in him all things hold together before the universe and any other created thing had its being christ was there and i know that we've said this before and it might it might sound like a broken record just going over this again and again but like christ didn't just show up in a manger one day and there he was no he always has been and he always will be because he's eternal and it's important that we really grasp that concept and if that's all we do this morning is preach christ uh, preach christ eternal then we've done a good job because we've exalted him to where he needs to be right in our lives and so jesus christ the creator god didn't just he also just didn't you know, put the earth in motion and leave it to the laws of nature to govern itself, right? He didn't just spin this thing and scratch his head and wonder how it's all gonna work out. Like, man, I didn't see that coming. 
Dang it, Chris, why'd you have to do that? I didn't see that coming at all, man. Really threw a curveball on me, that one. You know, that's not what God does. He didn't just put it into motion and say, step back, now y'all deal with it. I'll be back in a thousand years. It's not how he works. He literally sustains everything. Like, in him all things hold together is what what the text says. He's holding it all together. It's not falling apart. Without Jesus' mighty hand holding all things together, the earth would tilt and it would totter. The galaxies would collide together. We would utterly destroy one another in our sinfulness. All things would crumble and cease to exist if Jesus didn't hold it all together. Amen? Hebrews says... God sustains all things by the powerful by his powerful word. So just as he spoke all of this into existence with his word, he sustains it with his word, his powerful word. Man, the earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees. Did you know that? And it spins on its axis. It's tilted at 23.5 degrees perfectly. And it's at the most accurate like 93 million miles away from the sun. And it gives us the most precise amount of heat. And it gives us the seasons that we need to have to be able to inhabit the earth for the earth to continue to regenerate and regenerate and produce its own cycle. If the earth was tilted off a half a degree, if it was 22.5 or if it was 23.5 degrees, we would lose seasons. If the earth was any closer to the sun, we would burn up. If the earth was any further away from the sun, we would freeze to death. God sustains it all and he puts it into play that way for a reason so we can inhabit and we can live and we can glorify him. I'm thinking about, Cody, go ahead and pull up that picture now of my son there. I, I'm thinking about pregnancy here and, and birth and things like that. And I, I want to remind you, if he might find it, he might not. Cody's brand new back there. He's my brother, so I can say whatever I want to him. So anyways, I'll just kind of go on on the story. If you think about pregnancy and you think about life man like the moment that the egg is fertilized and then it begins to produce life i mean it it has life the moment at conception and then it it, it gains a heartbeat and it begins to you know that that baby begins to formulate fingers and toes and fingernails and eyelids and it's beautiful right like how life works and the whole time the mother sustaining this baby in the womb but God sustaining it you know uh, keeping him alive in the womb through the mother and then at the right time when God says to come out the baby is born and you hold this beautiful little child in your arms and you weep at how beautiful he is you know and you and you wonder like you don't have to wonder that there's a god when you see something like that and it's your flesh of your flesh you know like it's it's your child it's your blood it's beautiful and uh, I'll get a picture next time my wife told me to show a picture so if I don't that's on your head Cody <laughs> but <laughs> it's cool man we've been we've been fall partners for a long time man you know that one's on you I mean think about that though and and then even the birds and the lilies as Jesus talks about in Matthew I think it's in chapter 6 as he says you know, more or less, God takes care of the birds, right? And he takes, he clothes the lilies in all of its splendor. He gives the birds what it needs to survive. Don't you think that he'll sustain you and give you what you need as well? 
See, the galaxies are in motion exactly how Christ wants them to be. The earth is inhabitable because Christ made it that way and he keeps it that way. The baby is formed in, in the father or in the mother's womb because Christ designed it to be that way. The fish in the sea continue to thrive because Christ sustains them. We breathe in and we breathe out because Christ sustains us. This whole world goes around because Christ is sustaining it, holding it together, Amen. And what better sustainer is there than the one who created it all? We move on day in and day out with grace and mercy because Jesus who created the universe and everything in it sustains us according to the perfect will of his Father. And outside of creation, Christ still reigns supreme. Look there at verse 18 with me. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is supreme in the church. And Paul often uses, excuse me, an analogy between the church and the human body. We see this happen in Ephesians and I think maybe in 1 Corinthians as well as you see Paul talking about the church being the, the body of Christ. You see, the human body has what? We have toes, we got fingers, we've got hands, we've got elbows, we got knees, and we got a head. But if the human body didn't have a head, what would it be? It'd be dead, right? It absolutely couldn't function. Like, you could cut off my head, and I'm not going to be able to do anything. No matter how long you wait, I can't function without the head. And in the same way, as Paul's pointing and demonstrating this picture, the universal church is the body. And what I mean by that is, each one of us who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have been saved by grace through faith and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are members of the body of Christ. We're members of the universal church. We are the fingers, we're the arms, we're the legs, we're the kneecaps and the elbows, the eyelids, the ears. We're members of the body of Christ. And, and as the head, Christ gives us life. He allows us to be able to move and operate and that's how we become the church. That's how we become part of the, bo- uh, part of the body. But the significance of this statement deals with the theme of this chunk of Scripture, which is the supremacy of Christ over all things. And that means that that Christ is the chief operator. He's the will. He's the mind, the director, the leader, the authority of the church. He's the head. See, in the Reformation days, as they were reforming from the Roman Catholic Church, they were reforming from that because one of the reasons was the Pope believed that he was the head of the church and that he called the shots, right? Like, and so part of the, sorry, I got something in my nose there. Part of the Reformation um, had to deal with that, the fact that Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope, not, not a pastor, not anybody else, but Christ. He's the head. He's the director. He's the authority. And we, as members of the body of the church, are in complete submission to our head, who is Christ, who is sovereign above all things, including the church. And as we spoke about, the mention of the church as the body suggests, first, the, the church is a living organism whose members are joined vitally together. And second, the church is the means in which Christ will fulfill his purposes and missions and mission. And third, we have an intimate connection and union with Jesus who is our head. Amen? And, and you know, we, we've looked at this in the universal aspect. Now let's kind of dial this down into the local aspect. You see, since Christ is the sovereign, the authority, the leader, the head of the body, which is the church, 
In his providence, he has placed each and every single one of us as believers in this place this morning, right? Like, do you guys believe that, that Christ is sovereign? Do you guys, like, that, that Christ is supreme, that he has all reigning control and authority, that he does what he wants, nobody tells him what to do, and Christ has specifically placed Chris and Ben and Amanda and Tanner and Joe in this place as blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ to fulfill the purpose uh, of his mission. And we might be a small church, like we might count 20 people in here on a normal Sunday, but we're lacking nothing to fulfill the mission of advancing the kingdom of God until Christ returns. We might be, we might be just 20 people, but we have everything we need to be able to fulfill the, the mission of advancing the kingdom of God just as much as the church with 3,000 people does, right? Does that make sense? We're not lacking anything. We only need to acknowledge what our gifts are, to listen to where the Lord's leading us, to edify one another, build each other up in our gifts, and go and serve, and go and accomplish this mission. So we might be a small church, but we're not lacking anything because God providentially placed us here, and he knows what he's doing. And we can operate efficiently and effectively. And so maybe you're just joining us, or you know, maybe it's your first or your second time. Joe, I'm not calling you out, but I am. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's your first or, or, or your second time. But I want you to know that the mission of the church was given to us directly from the CEO, which is Jesus Christ. And that mission is to go forth and make disciples. And we've been planted a day here in the city in Omaha of, of, with, that is about 75% lost, right? So 75% dark, shadowy, black cloud. Uh, we are placed here in this city and we're called to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so our mission statement is to multiply disciples in churches that live and look like Jesus wherever we're planted. And so in order to do do that we need help like so jump on board and let's go and do this and so we invite you all to come and join us as we push back lostness in this city we invite you to come and join us as we glorify God and seek to make Jesus known wherever we live work or play and we can only do this united as we link arms and going forth to do this so let's gather together on Sundays let's go together throughout the week and let's serve together in the mission that God has called us to he has placed us all here uniquely individually and sovereignly he made no mistake. We can do this. We can see 75% uh, lostness pushed back in Omaha through a tiny little church plant like this. And what I want us to remember today is, is what Paul wanted the Colossians to remember in the first century, that Christ is the head of the church, that we submit to him, that we get our life from him. I'm not the head of this church. Like, I'm a pastor. I lead you. I don't have authority over you. Like, I don't, but I'm your shepherd. I feed you, I protect you, I guide you. I try, you know, to do those things, but I have no authority over you. I'm not the head of this church. Jesus is. It's his church. And the fourth thing is Christ is preeminent. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent See, he's the beginning of the church, the origin, the source of life. He willingly chose to enter into his own creation through the virgin birth, die upon the cross, and experience resurrection in order that he alone would be preeminent or first in rank in salvation. And he's firstborn from the dead. And we spoke of firstborn earlier in the sermon in terms of rank. And now here we, we look at the idea of the firstborn, not only in terms of rank, but also in precedence in time. 
See, as Christ was the first to raise from the dead in true resurrected life, Jesus Christ, uh, I'm sorry, I messed that up. See, Christ is the first to raise from the dead in true resurrected life. And you might think, well, you know, I've read the Bible and I know this story about, you know, Lazarus and I know this story about Jairus' daughter, you know, but they also raised from the dead before Christ died and rose from the dead, you know what I'm saying? So didn't they raise from the dead, aren't they, like, before him? Well, look, those people had to die again, right? But Jesus is the first one to resurrect to eternal life, like, uh, you know, uh, into true resurrected life. And Jesus Christ alone is the firstborn to raise from the dead and to never die again. And because Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in him alone is found the eternal life that all who trust and believe in him may inherit. See, it's our highest virtue, Anthony, as Christians, that our dead bodies, once we die and we're in Christ, will raise again, amen? and that we'll be given a new body, an eternal body, made in the perfect likeness of Christ without any sins, and that one day in our lives we'll live forever praising the Lamb and the Father for all of eternity. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, absolutely everything, he might be preeminent, that in everything he might be supreme, that in everything he might be the sovereign, that in everything he is above all other things and everything else. All authority on earth and in heaven has been given to him and he reigns above all things and over everything. And from verse 15, we can see that he is preeminent as he is the image of the invisible God. He surpasses all others as he is the firstborn of all creation. He is supreme as he is the creator of all things. He is sovereign as he is the eternal sustainer. He's the head of the church because he is the preeminent one. He alone surpasses all others in rank and time and glory and in love as he willingly laid down his life on the cross taking our due penalty for sin as he resurrected from the dead after three days his preeminence became deeper and wider than just being the creator and sustaining God in his resurrection he create he entered upon a more significant level of supremacy displaying his power over sin death and the grave triumphing over the work of the enemy screaming oh death where is your sting he did what no other person has done and what no other person could do apart from him. In his resurrection, he is preeminent in everything. He is supreme. This is our last point, guys. I'm closing up. Also, Christ is the Savior who makes peace. So unless the perfect image of the invisible God didn't come, unless the firstborn among creation didn't come, unless the creator of all things didn't come, unless the eternal sustainer didn't come, unless the head of the church didn't come, unless the preeminent one didn't come, unless Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, didn't come born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit in a humble major in Bethlehem, there would be no peace between sinful man and a holy, just, righteous God. If Jesus didn't come, we'd still be lost in our sin and enemies to God. See, Christianity is the only religion where God came to us. Every other religion, you're meriting things to try to get to God. But you see, God came to us and humbled himself by taking on the likeness of man. And not only did he come to us, but he related to us by taking on flesh and by being tempted in all the same levels that we're tempted, yet he did not sin. Anthony, can you go one whole entire day without sinning? Can you, Joe? Like, we're all fallen people, right? We're all screwed up. We all sin. We're all broken. 
if he didn't come, we'd all be lost still. But not only did God come to us, relate to us, and remain sinless, but the innocent, perfect God of the universe stretched out his arms and his legs on that cross that was cut from a tree that he grew. The eternal and sustaining God was nailed to the, to the cross, raised high for the whole world to see. The firstborn among creation, the head of the church, the sovereign one, died upon the cross at the hands of sinners. The cross of Christ soaked with the blood of the image of the invisible God. The cross marred with the blood of the firstborn among creation. The cross wearing the flesh of the creator of all things. The cross bearing the flesh of the eternal sustainer. The cross dripping, dripping, dripping with the blood of the head of the church. Glistening with the lifeblood of the preeminent one. On the cross, our great high priest and our king, Jesus Christ, from the lineage of David, the Lion of Judah shed his blood to atone for sin, to make peace between sinful man and a just holy God. He did what nobody else could do. And I want to close by reading Revelation 5. Revelation 5. As we look at the preeminent one who alone is worthy. <clears throat> <coughs> Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes and with seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take this scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, excuse me, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. That is the supreme Jesus that we serve. He is the one who alone is worthy to inherit the earth, to inherit his people. He alone is the one who is worthy to be praised in such a great degree. So Josh, you can make your way up here as we close. But I just want to ask a few questions. 
Since Christ is preeminent, what place does Christ have in your life? Do you understand what I mean? Like, where is Christ in your life? Is he second? Is he third? Is your wife or your husband put above Christ? Is your serving position at church put above Christ? Is your children above Christ? Who has first place in your life? Who's worthy of first place in your life? Christ and Christ alone. Is he first in your job? Is he first in everything that you do? You see, we won't see the city changed by just doing good deeds. We won't see this city change by just handing out water and food and, and things like that. I mean, the, the Red Cross can do that, right? The only way that we're gonna see this city changed is by making Christ attractive where we live, work, or play. And we do that by giving him the seat that he already has, by magnifying the fact that Jesus is creator, sustainer, head of the church, and that he is the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, and we thank you so much, God, that you have called us here as a church. And Father, I pray this morning that we would not walk out of here um, the same that we came in, that we'd all leave here changed, that, God, you would speak through my feeble words, God, and that what would be remembered is the very words of God and that we'd be changed, like I said. So, God, I just ask for your favor. I ask that you would keep us as we go throughout the week. In Jesus' name, amen.